tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Coming up on this week's show, a follow-up to one of the best beat-em-ups ever is coming. A new PS1 hack has been revealed. And we go behind the scenes at Ocean with Bill Harbison. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, if you're a fan of the Super Nintendo, you've got to check out the unofficial SNES Pixel Book, which features 272 pages celebrating the golden age of 16-bit gaming on Nintendo's ultra-popular console. So if you want to check that out and lots more as well, visit their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 267, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show. You know, for me, I don't know if you guys are the same, always a highlight of the week, this for me. Just before the weekend, we get to just kick back for an hour and talk about our favourite thing in the world, classic video games. I, I really love it, like... We've got such a good community here. Not only do I like doing the episodes weekly, but also the patrons are just absolutely amazing. We had a wicked patron chat and I've started live streaming. So we've got a new channel, which is um, on Twitch, the Retro Hour. And, you know, we're going to be streaming loads of different content. We've got a few plans for this channel and I've been streaming a few strategy games. It's been quite good fun, actually. It's 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 like meeting up with a whole group of mates when you're streaming. It's really interactive as well. You know, I loved, because um, I watched about the stream that you did on Saturday. Obviously, you're still getting used to it. There's about 10 minutes of you fixing your microphone <laughs> yeah. in the middle of it. <laughs> See, that but, would um, be me. Like, you guys would be like, jump on, Joe, do some action games. And it'd just be like 15 minutes of my bum crack trying to, like, leaning over, <laughs> trying to work out the mic or something. Now you're selling it, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell you, it's so hard to set up. Like, I, I'm amazed with these streamers and what they do because, you know... I, God, the amount of equipment, scenes, kind of capturing the games, getting the sound levels. It's its quite mad. But what, once you get used to it, it's fun. But whew, it's going to take a while. I'd forget somebody's watching me as well. I'd be like picking my nose or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because um, Joe is going to do a bit of streaming as well. I mean, we've been looking at capture cards and that kind of thing too. So we did actually do um, a few streams Probably about two years ago, didn't we? With um, with Bitmap Books, their um, adventure game book. We I, I streamed some Monkey Island. I remember. I think you played Police Quest. Yeah, yeah, and and, and that was on YouTube, wasn't it? So, um, but that was really simple. We just had like a simple overlay. This is all widgets and stream decks, and God knows what these days. Way more stuff to go wrong. So, um, yeah, definitely come and check us out at our new Twitch channel, which um, I'll put in this week's show notes as well. Now, of course, plenty to talk about on this week's show. We are going to be going behind the scenes at an amazing company. I mean, Ocean Software. We've done episodes about Ocean before. Um, we actually did a live panel with Gary Bracey at Play Expo in Blackpool that we put out on the show a couple of years ago. But, you know, Ocean, they were really the king 
of the the licensed games, weren't they, back in the day? Yeah, and, you know, you usually get, like, licensed games and licensed movies and, you know, they're not that good. But <laughs> we talk about some excellent licenses that were happening. You know, Batman was a great one, uh, Jurassic Park as well. And we talked with Bill Harbison from Ocean. It's a really fascinating chat this week. Yeah, and I mean, even going back, you know, before that, he worked on stuff like, um, you know, Daley Thompson's Olympic Challenge that I think, you know, that was the third one in the uh, Daley Thompson trilogy. It came out in 1988. He worked on Robocop. So, yeah, Bill, he's, he's a really interesting guy. So if you're a fan of Ocean Software, um, he worked on loads of their games back in the day. So real insight into uh, Ocean during their heyday coming up with uh, Bill Harbison on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now, as soon as we finished recording last week's show, literally about five minutes after we finished it, this trailer landed for the follow-up to one of my all-time favourite arcade games. Now, um, this is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge. How amazing does this look? This looks awesome, man. This is like right up my street. It's right up Dan's street. Not so sure about Ravi's. It's not a strategy game, so I don't know if it's up your street. <laughs> no, no, I, I still enjoy that co-op playing, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, literally, it was like the first thing I did, like after we stopped recording last week, like quickly check my phone. And it was like the top thing on Facebook, like uh, Teenage Mutant I can't even say it. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Shredder's Revenge. Keep that in because it's funny and it's embarrassing. Shredder's Revenge, yeah, the sequel to uh, Turtles in Time. Well, you know, a pseudo sequel to Turtles in Time. Um, and this actually comes from Daemu, who we had on the show last year, who did Streets of Rage 4, which is really cool. And they were saying, you know, they've got a really cool IP that they're working on at the moment. And a lot of us were like, Golden Axe, Golden Axe kind of thing, because he said it was from the 16-bit era. But obviously he was on about Turtles. But yeah, man, this this looks awesome. Um, I feel like they, you know, a lot of the feedback about Street, uh, Streets of Rage 4 was the art style. Not many people were keen on the hand-drawn style and wanted the like 16-bit pixel graphics back. And it seems like they've listened to that and brought that back for this, which I think a few people will be happy about. Yeah, one of the games I actually stream with Streets of Rage 4, and I like the way that you could actually go back in and have some of the pixel graphics yeah, in there. Yeah, the characters, yeah. This one looks pure pixels. And, yeah. You know, these are the right guys to do it, aren't they? They, they did a yeah. fantastic job on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've not got a um, a release date yet, but we've got an awesome reveal trailer with a, a new rendition of the, the original theme tune, uh, which is pretty good, actually. But it just says it's coming to console and PC, you know, soon. It just says coming soon. But with Streets of Rage 4, they kind of did that as well. It, like, they didn't release, they didn't say when it was coming out until like a week before. They did the initial, re- well, like kind of like, you know, a trailer to the reveal trailer like a year before, didn't they? And then they did like, a full-on reveal trailer like this and then literally like i remember you contacted them and they're like yeah it's coming out next week and we were like let's get, <laughs> let's get you guys on like straight away kind of thing so don't know when it'll come out but if it was anything like that i don't think we'll have to wait long but yeah it looks like it's four player couch co-op um and online and i'm sure it'll probably be on you know xbox one ps4 ps5 etc you know you mentioned the um the new version of the classic teenage mutant ninja turtles theme song this is actually by um mike Patton from the band faith no more oh is it yeah, oh, wow. so this is it here. Listen. Copyright claim. And you look at it and they've got them, um, because the, the trailer they put out there, it's about a minute and a half long. And the first probably like a minute or so of it is what looks like it could be a scene or an intro from the 
1987 cartoon that was on telly. It is that well drawn yeah. and that well animated. It looks like it's straight out the cartoon. Yeah, 100%. It was a proper throwback. And then the game itself, yeah, you know, reminds me so much of the the arcade title. Mm-hmm. I love the little touches they've got in there as well. I mean, obviously, like you said, these guys are the right guys to do it, having, you know, that reputation of doing, you know, really good retro pedigree games like Streets of Rage 4. I love the fact that you can even throw the enemies into the screen, you know, like you could have yeah. the original as well. All those little touches are in there as well. I, I, so, I uh, literally played the, uh, I was playing the Cobra Kai, beat him up the other week, and one of the achievements is you throw somebody into the screen, and it was literally called, like, Cowabunga Dude, the achievement. Right. And I was like, nice. <laughs> Like, so yeah, I'm so glad they've got that in there again. <laughs> and this is like the period of Turtles that I absolutely loved. You know, when mm-hmm. everybody was mad on Turtles and they had the cartoons and everything. This was this was the peak Turtles for me. Turtle Mania, yeah. You know, I'm really hoping it's in there as well, though. The manhole covers when you fall down. Oh the yeah, who turned the lights out? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they will be. <laughs> yeah, so uh, really excited for this. So um, we'll, we'll put a link to the trailer if you want to check it out on our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, also in the last week, we've got some uh, very sad news that an inventor of a technology that not only changed our life in terms of computers, but also music as well. This was the inventor of the cassette tape sadly passed away. This is a chap called um, Lou Ottens, who was 94 years old. He was a Dutch engineer, and he was also instrumental in the development of the first CD when he worked at Philips as well. But he was uh, the brainchild behind the uh, micro-cassette tape, as they called it back then, you know, that obviously not only put music into our pockets, you know, when the Walkman came along, but also, I mean, early home computers. That was the way that, you know, especially here in Britain, you know, until the late 80s, a lot of us would go out and all our game collection will be on cassette tape. So he's really to thank for so much in our lives. Yeah, it's a fantastic kind of story. I, I really didn't know this, but um, he, he created a radio device because uh, he was Dutch. And, um, you know, with the German occupation of uh, the Netherlands with the Nazis, they basically used jammers uh, so people couldn't use the local radios or like, listen to local radios. So he built a a radio to kind of uh, circumvent these jammers and then later that was when he was a kid he later then went on to do the um cassette tape and you know it's really interesting one of the taglines originally was that it was smaller than a packet of cigarettes <laughs> i don't know if you could kind of have that tagline nowadays but it was a really nice little kind of compact device and you know the quality of tape is quite high sometimes. Um, he 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 kind of says, you know, uh, he was quoted talking about CDs and nothing can match the sound of a CD. But I kind of liked metal tapes. Do you remember those? They're really, really high quality ones. If you look on eBay now for metal tapes, my God, they're expensive. So I've read some articles um you know, about his obituary and kind of his story as well that are interesting. Apparently, someone had asked him in recent years what he thought of kind of the, um you know, the comeback of cassettes you know that kind of retro fans are getting into them again and he kind of snubbed it a bit saying that you know we need to move on it's like he he didn't agree that they were still worth listening to but i think you're right because you know there are videos on youtube techmoan in particular did a few really good videos you know i think one of them is called um cassette tapes better than you don't remember and he shows you know those kind of really you know the metal tapes and those really high quality ones so obviously stuff like um that you know digital audio tape came along shortly after, uh, well, in the 80s, I think that was. But, um, yeah, I think a lot of our experience of listening to music 
on cassette tapes was, you know, bad recordings off the radio listened to on our uh, cheap little Walkmans or, you know, ghetto blasters or boom boxes. So we probably didn't get the best experience that you would have listening on really high-end kit. Well, they're running Google servers at the moment on big tapes and uh, it's obviously storing information on their high, really huge amounts of data but it's not. It's not a cassette tape that they're running it on. <laughs> a giant you cassette tell me tape. Gmail doesn't run on a cassette yeah. tape. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I interestingly read that um, him and his father set up a company in 1968. You know, they, they were supplying it. And then this another company came out, which was called the uh, National Audio Company. Now, if you go to 2021, the uh, National Audio Company, with only 30 employees... It's now producing 95% of the world's cassette tapes because there has been a revival. So this old company is still kind of doing it in Springfield in America. And they're just like producing these. And uh, it's pretty amazing to see this revival. There's been like recent films like Guardian of the Galaxies that's um, had... Oh, the soundtrack. Yeah, Yeah, the soundtrack on tape. I've gone into record stores, seen a little tape revival. You know, there's still people producing games on tape it's pretty mad to see it still going yeah a friend of mine actually put a video up for, he lives in dubai of um virgin megastore that they still have out in dubai and there are, you know their shelves are full of like new albums on cassette so they are still coming out you know in in high street shops around many places in the world but i think in terms of even you know you think back to the 80s we got video games on cassette tape because disc drives back then if you want to get a disc drive for your commodore 64 you know, it cost as much as a computer. So having this cheap, affordable medium that we could buy games on for, you know, two pounds sometimes, that really did enable an entire industry, didn't it? I mean, I can't imagine that gaming or computers will be what, what they are today without cassette well, tapes. One of the first things we did in sound engineering school was um, we recorded ourselves saying like, one, two, three, four, five. And then they gave us a, a, a knife and uh, some tape and they said, right, cut that up and you'd cut the tape so and then reorder it and it'd go five four three two one and it was like well cool was that on cassette yeah tape? yeah yeah showing your age wow. there mate <laughs> <laughs> well it was just showing the kind of principles but yeah yeah it was uh really really interesting you know i i've got a few cassette uh, funnily enough yeah there that, that familiar sound of a cassette tape i did find a bunch of them recently these kind of old ones that i've been going through and just recording um using like a high-end deck that i got from work a couple of years ago it is quite interesting playing them again and everything but i do not miss it as a medium i must say there are a few of these here that are all like crinkled up and do you ever get that one a tape would kind of bend and it would go the wrong way and you could never get it yeah, back or you've got the a tape pen inside and you've got to cartridge. rewind it or, yeah. or, or, <laughs> or it's twisted or take the whole kind of casing out and then rebuild it in a in a new piece of casing just to get that old tape like also if you think about it tapes were the kind of early napster or social media of the days because mixtapes and like you know house music and lots of dance music hip-hop would get shared on tape and it would you know there'd be copies of a copy of a copy that would go around and there'd be still these legendary tapes and uh, that's kind of how they spread it before the internet kids all those um girls that you wooed in your teenage years ravi with mixtapes oh, wouldn't be able to do that without I lou Otten, God, so. i've still got some <laughs> that girls owe me <laughs> like, I, I might contact him nowadays years later where's that tape i led you at school <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah rest in peace lee Watson. there are not many people that you can say you know absolutely changed the world but um he definitely did so rest in peace and uh thank you for all the music and the games 
Now, um, the PlayStation 1, obviously you'd think that was the system that we kind of knew everything about, being out for like, what is it now, 26, 27 years since that system was made. But apparently it turns out that there is a new software hack that's allowed the PlayStation to be unlocked. This, a little bit over my head, this one. So apparently, so, so it's called Tony Hacks, which I love, because apparently all you need is a copy of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2, a legitimate copy to do this, to do this exploit, which, you know, like you say, opens it up. Um, and apparently it's part of the create a skater mode, uh, which is found on Tony Hawk's 2, 3 and 4. I didn't think number 4 came out on the PS1, but I could be wrong, but they're using number 2 in this video. And essentially when you go into the custom character, when you save the name, apparently there was like an oversight with like the length of the name. And from what I understand, I'm really simplifying it here. I'm hoping Ravi knows a little bit more about it. But when essentially, if you put in certain digits and you make the name too long, essentially it, it kind of like opens up like the, I don't know the name of it, but it just opens it up so that you, you can then play copied games and you just swap the game over to a copied game and it will just run the game without chipping the PlayStation essentially. Yeah, so this is uh, called a buffer overflow. And basically okay. I'm surprised that this wasn't, found before because tony hawk's pro skater 2 it's a really common game everyone's on the create escape mode but um if you think about like titles like um toy story that they had Mm. on the uh, ds i think it was on the game boy as well um uh like brain training that they use Mm. on the nintendo it's it's on the wii u it's a way to kind of insert an exploit code Uh, yeah so it's like a payload yeah yeah to run exploited code and basically uh run code that's not originally meant to be on the system so what they've managed to do is they've managed to get the payload which is on a memory card right so they put that in and then they do the buffer overflow trick and then that actually and they overflow it by putting the code into the well well well, the the creator skater would cause that screw up basically and then it contacts the memory card gets this kind of code to uh, this payload to load up some uh, custom software <laughs> and then you can put your burnt CD-ROM in there and, and play straight away. No chipping or anything required. Of course, you could just put a piece of paper in there and do the older little pen trick or the swap trick, but this is a nice other way of doing it. And uh, I'm just so surprised this hasn't been found before because this is pretty much the method that everybody uses to exploit the Wii, exploit uh, most consoles. You see, it's interesting because I want to know, like, what was the thought process to go back and kind of like, I'm guessing somebody was going <laughs> through, like, the code for Tony Hawk's 2 and just found found it, that there wasn't, like, a limit on the Creator Skater name thing and thought, oh, wow, that's, a you know, a good way of hacking the PlayStation. Like, it's just, what <laughs> what was the thought process behind that? Maybe, like you say, they were they already were more than aware of the things of, like, brain training and stuff with the Wii and the Wii U and stuff, and they were thinking of, like, a game that you could potentially do it with on the PS1. That's the only thing I can think of, but I think that's more interesting than the fact that they managed to get it to play copied games through Tony Hacks. Yeah, it's kind of like it breaks it out of that mm. environment, and you need to find out how that's triggered. And uh, I don't know, maybe someone was just inserting mad skater names <laughs> and just found it, you know, hugely long ones. Joey, Joey, Joe Shabadoo. <laughs> that's, that's the code. Yeah. You know, it does seem, um, you'd think all these years later, the fact that people are still finding new ways to do things with these systems, it makes you wonder what else is kind of buried 
inside consoles that haven't been discovered yet, um, which I think is always really interesting. And this, I mean, like you said, everyone kind of did the the swap trick back in the day, but this does seem, you know, a bit more elegant than jamming half a matchstick in the uh, in the disc jet mechanism. <laughs> and uh, so. Hacker Day at the end, they say, you know, expect to see memory cards with this exploit pre-installed uh, to hit your so favourite yeah. site in the yeah. future. Yeah, so that could be pretty cool. Yeah, you know what's interesting is that there seems to be more of a scene around the PlayStation 2, you know, obviously with like um, Freeman Boot and that kind of thing. It always surprised me that it seemed to be a lot more active on the PS2 than the PS1. Yeah, I guess maybe Swap Trick um, just like defeated all of that or or <laughs> maybe people are just looking back now because there's that uh, PSIO as well and, uh, you know, yeah. d- devices are starting to get hacked and modded. Yeah, I don't think it's the same with you guys. I've become a lot more nostalgic for the PS1 in the last year or two. I've actually got one set up permanently now. My, I've, in my I've got a pretty good PS1 collection and I, I never buy for the PS1. The majority of it is just like games from, you know, cart boots when I was a teenager and games from when I was a kid. But yeah, recently I found myself kind of like going on eBay and looking for a couple of PS1 games and stuff. Like I never used to be like after the PS1 games, but now, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's just all of a sudden it's like it was the 25 year anniversary of the other year or, or what, or just lockdown getting to me and looking at other, other consoles to collect for, but... <laughs> Yeah, there's there's something about it which is becoming more nostalgic for me. You know, there's definitely more love for it from me recently. I'm definitely emulating it a lot more as well, like on my TV and using RetroArch and stuff. So, uh, yeah, great to see new ways of uh, being able to unlock your PlayStation collection and uh, get games from anywhere. Now, maybe you've got a Game Boy Advance lying around and you're thinking, oh, I could do with watching a couple of movies on that. So, yeah, so a YouTuber... Uh, has apparently found the worst way to watch the film Tenant on his Game Boy Advance SP. Now, this is really, I found this really interesting because of, at the point of recording this, the Angry Video Game Nerd released a new episode last night and uh, it was about how he's trying to like watch Shrek on Game Boy Advance. Like he watches Shrek on his Game Boy Advance, you know, on a on a video cartridge. I didn't know Visa were a thing. Like, I'm, I'm completely dumbfounded by it. I oh. didn't realise you could buy films for the Game Boy Advance. Like, I was like, did you guys know this was a thing? Not at all, no. I obviously knew about the you know PSP and everything you could. Yeah, I'd never heard yeah, of it on so the Game Boy you, Advance, though. It's been cartridge-based, I was like. Yeah, I didn't think it, it's cartridge-based. Now, don't get me wrong, it looks terrible. Which 240 is why you- by 160 <laughs> resolution. Yeah, and it's <laughs> choppy as hell. So obviously this is why he's saying it's the worst way to watch Tenant. Now, I've, I've not seen Tenant. I don't, I don't know what it's about or anything like that. But essentially, this comes from a YouTuber called uh, Wolfden. Uh, and essentially, um, there was a meme kind of like when the film came out about how it's a Christopher Nolan film, how he really wanted people to go see it at the cinema, you know, and he was saying you get the full experience of seeing this film, the sound quality and everything from seeing it at the cinema. Bearing in mind, this was all during like the peak of COVID and all the cinemas were closed. Which I thought, you know, so he kind of thought like off the back of that, he kind of wanted to make a meme out of Christopher Nolan. So he thought, what's the worst (laughs) way I could possibly watch this film? Um, And that was by putting it on a Game Boy Advance cartridge. Now, what's really interesting is I've watched the video on it. He goes through the entire process of how he gets it on there, how he's converted it into the, you know, the video it needs to be and all this kind of stuff. But not only has he had to put it on cartridge, he's had to put it on five cartridges because each cartridge can only store wow. half an hour of video, and it looks terrible. But you can actually watch the film. Like, you can tell what's going on. The film is 
you know, I, I don't want to use the term watchable, but it is watchable. There is sound. There is, you know, it it works. It's just it's just choppy as hell. But I, I want to get Dan Wood on there doing one of his YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> like I've looked into it a bit here, and actually, it was like uh, ten dollars um, for one, or or, or twenty dollars for a movie, which is not that bad actually. Or what to buy them in the past. Yeah, yeah, but also, okay. you know, there was that Game Boy player, right, wasn't there, which was um, for the GameCube. Yeah, apparently they don't work on it. Yeah, yeah, but remember we covered the uh, TV out on the DS Lite? Oh, uh, yeah. Maybe there's a hack there. Oh, yeah, maybe there is. Yeah, no, 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 there might be, yeah, but apparently, uh, according to the AVGM video, he he was saying that he didn't think that Nintendo was scared that people were going to videotape you you know if you put it into the Game Boy player they then you'd then videotape the film and then sell the <laughs> film that would be quality worth watching <laughs> like 240 by <laughs> bloody hell which really made me laugh but yeah he's, he's gone to a lot of effort with this you know he, he's even printed out little labels for the the cartridges and you know part one of five part two of five he's got the nintendo nintendo seal of approval on there you know he's really gone to a lot of effort for this project you know, and he even made sure that he actually bought a copy of the film so he wasn't breaking the law and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, a lot of effort for, you know, essentially just for a meme, which is quite funny. But I looked up on eBay how much, like, these, you know, the Shrek uh, Game Boy Advance film is now, and they're like £60 for just, like, Shrek on Game Boy Advance. And How many cartridges did that come on? I don't know. Then? I think it was just the one. Because of um, it, right, okay. it, it's like a box set where you get Shark Tail with it as well, so I'm, not, I'm, I'm assuming it's just one. But I, I'm not too sure why he had to put this on five. But I think it was he said it was because of the quality of the film. They need to because flash, yeah, flashcards yeah. as well because it's like a kid's handheld. They need to do like a really gruesome like Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> or something <laughs> for the um, Game Boy Advance. Clockwork yeah, Orange. Is- <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I do. I do think you know top marks for effort. Just to you know, like you said, really just to annoy yeah. Christopher Nolan. He went to a lot of effort just to do that, really. So, um, yeah, imagine him watching that and just seething. But he bought the film, so there's nothing he can do about it legally. <laughs> you know, if, if Christopher Nolan's got a sense of humor, he should be like, let's put it out there, let's release it. On yeah, the Game Boy Advance. Put, stick it on Amazon. And you can buy them. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, kind of following up the the PlayStation One story, you mentioned a new hack there. This is interesting. The the Sega Saturn that we know is obviously a platform that is kind of famed for being very hard to crack. I mean, it only actually got um, cracked properly in the last couple of years, uh, but now a flash cart is on the way that will make it really easy to play all your favourite Sega Saturn games without the discs. Yeah, so we saw a video a while ago from uh, Dr. Abrasive who um, actually showed us that he'd managed to hack it using the video port and uh, at the back. And basically, he created an exploit for that. But now he's helped develop this piece of, software, uh, piece of hardware, which is called the Saturnator, and it plugs into the back in your video area and it seems to work really well they've just done a video on game sack about it so i thought it was definitely worth mentioning like there's a few things here it it, it reads so much stuff on there like you know if you've got a, a qwav file or a q image or a q bin but it also runs an iso um they're saying you need to make sure that your saturn's backup battery is actually charged um, because if you right. put it in then it won't work but it's it's got this even a little plastic lever on it so when you put it in uh, like the video card had a little handle you've got a little plastic lever and you can pull it out but all reports seem to be it's playing 
like nearly all of the games absolutely perfectly. I'd, I'd, actually, I think all of them have been playing perfectly. And you can use some um, really big micro SD cards on there. So there's no uh, size limit. Like there's one terabyte um, micro SD cards work. So you could have every single Saturn game on there and just uh, load it up straight into the menu. So it looks like a really cool little piece of hardware. This does the Saturnator. I mean, looking at the price of it, I mean, it's on the higher end of the scale for flashcards, um, $259.99. So, you know, it's quite a bit of money, but I mean, there's not, if you've got a Saturn and you want this solution, there are not many other ways to do it, really. I mean, I, I've got a, a modded Sega Saturn, but I had to get a mod chip for that. I had to open it up and solder it into various points on the board and into the power supply as well. And even then it can be, you know, sometimes I'll put a disc in my Saturn and it will mistake it for an audio CD you know, like mm. nine times out of 10 until I eventually get it loading. So it's always been very flaky kind of trying to run backups on the um, Sega Saturn. So I think having this solution, even though it is quite expensive, you know, $259, I think there definitely is a need for it. Yeah, and sorry, the guy's called Professor Abrasive. I, I seem to have downgraded him. He's had an upgrade in yeah. the meantime. But also, like, <laughs> you can update the firmware on these as well. So they are going to develop mm. and, you know, there'll be extra functions and capability, which is pretty cool. And it means that you're not getting inside your machine. You know, if, if you don't want to open it up, um, then you can just stick this in the back and uh, go for it. There are obviously a lot of games, I imagine, Joe, that you would like to play that you haven't got in your Saturn collection. That probably cost yeah, more than Yeah, I was going to say there's probably quite a few out there that cost a lot more than $259, $269. So it, it, it would definitely be a good solution, but it is sold out. So you have to put yourself on the waiting list if you want one now. So, yeah. you know, in the meantime, I could be buying it's- and bidding on eBay. <laughs> Second Saturn games for one game. <laughs> They're saying um, also with the extra uh, RAM cartridges, you know, you put it in the cartridge mm-hmm. part of the Saturn and uh, you get some extra RAM. That's working, but uh, the MPEG cartridge, maybe not, you know. So th- there's going to be a mix. I, I don't know if you'll be able to run the video and this, uh, if you'll be able to have a pass-through or something, so... I mean, if he's using that port anyway, you know, maybe there's a possibility that, I mean, not many people had those anyway. I think they're only to play video CDs. So, I mean, if you are desperate to, you know, watch four weddings and a funeral on your uh, (laughs) (laughs) satin, (laughs) you can probably just unplug it for an hour or two. But maybe that's the kind of thing they can actually make in, um, you know, put it on the firmware, like an emulator for the, the video cart. Yeah, that could be cool. There could be loads of different options with this. Yeah, so um, nice to see some uh, new Sega Saturn development. So um, everything we talked about, of course, will be in our show notes. We put them all in there to save you Googling around every week at theretrohour.com. Now, before we chat Ocean Software with Bill Harbison, our special guest, let's give a massive thank you to this week's sponsor, our dear friends at Harry's. Now, um, how are your chins looking, boys? Mine's feeling pretty fresh at the moment. It's pretty fresh. <laughs> I actually had a shave about two days ago and it was Ooh. a clean shave. And there was only one reason why I had a clean shave. And that was because it was Harry's. Yeah, listen to this. Listen to that. Baby smooth, baby smooth. <laughs> now, um, this is Harry's who have got a really interesting story, actually. I mean, they're two ordinary guys who were fed up with overpriced razors and they went on a mission to fix shaving. And they knew the only way they could do that is by buying their own factory. So Harry's mission is really simple. They take less profit. They offer great quality products at a fair price as well. And they've got amazing quality blades that are almost half the price of the leading five blade brand it does feel like a premium product when you use harry's though doesn't it you know the the way it feels in your hand and like you said that smooth shave that you get compared to stuff that you'll get in the supermarket 
Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. And what I love about it as well is I, I always get really bad nicks, really bad acne and stuff whenever I have a shave. But whenever I shave with a Harry's one, I never do. It is always like you say, it's just that smoothness and that quality. So we want you to try Harry's for yourself, and that includes this trial set, everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. And of course, you'll be helping out the podcast by supporting our sponsors. So get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for just three pound ninety five, and it will be delivered to you, including a razor handle, a five blade cartridge, the foaming shave gel and a travel blade cover. You know, things are starting to open up. Maybe a possibility of holidays this summer. You need to get sorted for that. So you can do it right now by heading to harrys.com forward slash retro. That's harrys.com slash retro. Thanks to our very good friends at Harry's. Now, of course, we have got a patron running at the moment as well. We did do, um, God, it's about two and a half hours. Our patrons hang out on Sunday night, I think. Me and Joe are still on there at about quarter past ten at night. Yeah, I'm usually the one who ducks out early because of the baby, but I was like, I'm going in tonight. I'm having fun. <laughs> <laughs> we did a really good thing, actually, which was discussing video game movies and the up-and-coming video mm. game movies and, and what we think they would be. I, I find that really interesting. And also, we did a mad talk about internet security and Wi-Fi, which I just really love getting nerdy on. Yeah, it was so much fun. And we had a really good turnout um, to this one as well. So um, you can come along and join us for that each month if you are a patron. Or, you know, some people just come in and watch, you know, if you just want to have it on the background, you don't have to join in. But it is great just to catch up and nerd out about all things retro. And, of course, you also get our uh, patrons' exclusive podcast, The Retro Hour After Hours. Now, we're going to be recording a new episode of that on Friday. This time we're going to be talking about video game urban legends. I'm looking forward to this one. I've had to compile a list compile a list for this one, you know, and it, it's going to be funny hearing about like the school ground ones as well, yeah. <laughs> like the playground ones. Yeah, I was thinking a mix of like urban legends that, that we know and that, that we heard when we were kids, but also ones that are out yeah. there in the kind of public because, you know, we've heard of Polybius, we've heard of all of that kind of stuff, but there's other ones, there's other really weird ones as well. Yeah, so um, you can check out our Patreon's exclusive podcast. I think we're up to about episode nine coming out soon. Um, so that should be with you in the next week. You also get the regular show early. You get it ad-free. Um, and, of course, you'll be helping out the show. That's a real reason that we have a patron running, just to ensure the future of this podcast. And it means we can bring it to you each week and get these amazing guests as well. And, of course, for supporting the show, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, a big thank you to Jake Worrell. Instant gratification monkey. Gavin Creech. Asen Ivanov and Wonderly Chesim who all made donations into the running of our show we really appreciate your support guys thank you so much and if you'd like to do the same you'll find it all the details on our website at theretrohour.com and before we go there's one thing I'd just like to mention mm. which was you know we've seen two podcasts Arcade Attack Go and Arcade Perfect and you know these are fantastic podcasts so guys please check out the um back catalogues of these podcasts and you know if there are, are any listeners from arcade and attack and arcade perfect welcome to the show yeah it's always sad i mean that those are both you know two of my favorite podcasts so when um other retro gaming podcasts kind of go on hiatus or end you know it's very sad but obviously we're going to do our best to keep the show going so your support is massively appreciated um your reviews as well on your favorite podcast platforms that always makes a big difference you know it'll take you a couple of minutes to do it on apple Podcasts at most and then that helps get us in the charts in front of new people so um honestly thank you so much for uh, all of those amazing reviews so far um keep them coming now next we are going to go inside the legendary ocean software with this week's special guest Bill Harbison. 
need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, today, we're going to be getting some inside stories from one of our favorite companies. And, you know, we always used to get these games as, as kids. You know, it was one of the most infamous British software houses in the 80s and 90s. We're going to be talking about Ocean Software with this week's very special guest. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, Bill Harbison. Hello, Bill. Hello, guys. Good to speak to you. You too. Now, um, before we get into, you know, those kind of stories of that golden era back at Ocean, I mean, it's always nice to kind of find out where your journey started with computers and video games. I mean, do you remember like the first ever computer or game that you saw then, your first experience? Um, The first uh, game that I saw was when, probably 1977, when we went on a school trip to London. So they took us all from Scotland on a train, took us down to London, and in this hotel that they were staying in, there was uh, the arcade machine Pong, and uh, we couldn't get near it. Nobody could get near it to play it because it was this room that contained the machine was just rammed with kids all the time, so you couldn't even get to play it. But uh, that was the first time that I actually saw like a computer game or an arcade game. Were, were they regretting putting it in the hotel after all the kids were gathering for a long time? I, I mean, they must have made quite a bit of money off it because it was it was being played constantly. It's just that when when we came in, I can remember coming into the hotel and dropping our cases off in our room and coming downstairs, and there was just such a buzz coming from this room. We managed to squeeze our way into and through the door into the room, and you you couldn't get near it. It was like maybe eight kids deep before you even got to see it. And were you like really into art as a kid and, and what kind of stuff influenced you? Uh, yeah, I was uh, I was sort of like an only child and I was quite solitary. So I'd spend a lot of time drawing comics and drawing pictures out of the Radio Times of people like Clint Eastwood and all that sort of thing. And I was, the more I kept doing it, the, you sort of, the better I got. So I was... I was quite prolific at, at drawing portraits by the time I was about 12. So um, I was I was good at drawing, but um, it wasn't until later on that I got the chance to go to um, Glasgow School of Art. And I decided not to go because I had been offered a job after quite a lengthy process at Ocean. And what what kind of comics influenced you as well, and uh, what were you reading at the time? Well, you, we had stuff like 2000 AD and obviously the Beano and all that other stuff, but I, I was brought up in like a tiny little village in Scotland in the middle of nowhere, and in the newsagents they used to have this cardboard box which was full of these comics that they'd brought over, and it was uh, it was all the Marvel and DC comics. So I was like fascinated from a, an early age with like Superman and Batman and Spider-Man and the Hulk and all that sort of thing. So I used to get my mum to buy them and I used to uh, draw them for myself. You know, I don't know why I wanted to draw them, but I was 
sort of learning in the process. Well, when did you get your first computer then? And what was your first home computer system? Uh, that would have been the ZX81. I was probably about 14 because I was in secondary school at the time, probably about 13 or 14. And it was just one of the teachers brought one in on a, a science class and hooked it up to the TV. And I was just fascinated by it. And all he did was type in like a, a few lines of uh, basic, which was like a, a Mandelbrot generator. And it put random pixels in a pattern on the screen. And I just thought this was amazing and <laughs> pestered my parents to get me one. What kind of things were you doing at, at first with it? Like, uh, were you initially gaming and then uh, getting into programming? Uh, I wasn't doing a lot with it, to be fair. I was mainly typing in the programs from the manual. And, and that was about it. But I seemed to, I, I guess I just enjoyed the process of, typing commands into the computer and it responding and doing stuff on the screen. To be fair, there wasn't a whole lot you could do on the ZX81 anyway, was there? Well, no, not really. But recently I've seen on YouTube, there's been all sorts of like games and stuff that were out, but I wasn't able to get my hands on any of those. So it was just basic, simple, basic uh, programming I was doing. Well, the Spectrum must have seemed like a massive leap forward, you know, obviously having colour graphics. Um, yeah, I saw the Spectrum at secondary school uh, a few years after the ZX81, and then I thought, well, I need to get one of these now. Still had no idea of doing graphics on it. It was just basically to swap games with my friends at school and just waste time playing games. What got you into doing graphics on it? Um, it was about the time where I was possibly going to be going to art school, but I was still into stuff like computer and video games and like your Sinclair and that sort of thing. And I always saw like uh, on, on adverts for the, the games, there was always an address at the bottom, you know, like 8 Central Street, Manchester for Ocean and various other ones. And I just had the sort of revelation that there must be some people, people must be making these games. You know, somebody, somebody wants to sit down and draw these graphics. Um, so I started off doing very simple sort of user-defined graphics um, on on the keyboards where you can set like um, you can set a certain part of the character set to type and and create uh, graphics in it, and then you sort of lay it out. It was you could only make little tiny sort of sprite-sized images, and then I, later on I managed to get a hold of I think a bot a copy of The Artist 2, which was like a full uh, graphics package for the Spectrum. Um, so after, like, because Computer and Video Games magazine had games that were out in the arcade, plus it had Spectrum reviews in it as well, I started doing mock-ups of what the new arcade machines that were coming out would look like on the Spectrum so I did a few of those and uh, did a few other images like that and um, started sending them off to different companies uh, around the UK. It was kind of amazing back then because you could just like 
pick a random company, send them something and actually get a response. What was it like when you started getting stuff back and, uh, you know, interest and how did that lead to paid work? I didn't get, uh, I didn't get any uh, response for quite a while, actually. I got a response from Electronic Arts saying that they weren't looking for anybody at all. The same with US Gold. Um, I got a letter from Elite saying that they were interested in what I was doing and could I send them some more stuff. Um, so I sent them some more graphics and they came back and said, oh, you know, with this was uh, we, we like the look of this. Can you send us some more stuff? And then I sent them some more and then they came back and said, well, we're not really sure now. But this process was taking months because obviously I've got to create whatever graphics on the spectrum then have to record it on a tape and stick it in the post to send to Elite and then has to go through their system. Somebody has to see it and then decision has to be made and then they have to write a letter back to me. So the whole thing was taking way too long. And where did Ocean come into the picture? Well, I was getting a bit disheartened because I wasn't getting any um, responses from anyone really that was, was concrete. So... I remember a friend of mine saying, have you sent your stuff to Ocean? And I was like, no, because Ocean aren't very good. I'd never even thought of sending them to Ocean. So I did send them to Ocean. And then, like, um, at the time, we didn't have a telephone in the house. So we needed to give the – I had to write the phone number of the house next door. So (laughs) – about a month after I sent my tape and letter off, the woman next door came and knocked on and said, there's a woman from England on the phone wanting to speak to me. So uh, that was Lorraine Starr who asked me if I wanted to come down for an interview. Well, I bet you're like, oh, that was just my secretary answering the phone then. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> I mean, so you weren't a fan of Ocean's Games at the time. So I mean, like, you know, around this era then, you know, it was obviously before their kind of, their boom in the late 80s, early 90s, I guess. It was the Street Hawk and Knight Rider era. So, because I remember I had, uh, I think the main thing that put me off was I'd sent off in a catalogue for a, a copy of Street Hawk. And it took about between four and six months to arrive. And then when it arrived, it wasn't the game that was on the screenshots. It was like a version of uh, Joust, you know, with the, the, the ostriches jumping from platform to platform. It was it was that, and I just thought, no, this this company's rubbish. Why would I want to send my stuff to them? But then when I did send it to them, and I, it was, I got a response from them, and asked, they asked me to come down for an interview. Well, when you went down for an interview, um, uh, did you meet Gary Bracy? And uh, what were you? What was your first impression of Ocean and uh, the MD at the time? Well, the place looked pretty old and <laughs> it, it, it looked like a, a bit of a state even then because you you come into the centre of Manchester, you turn up at this this old building which was owned by some religious group um, and you go down into the cellar and there's barely any carpet on the floor and like the walls are falling apart and stuff. Um, I did meet Gary for the first time, and he seemed like a a decent guy. But obviously, I was I'd just come down from my little village in Scotland, and everything was quite intimidated. So I was intimidated by just about everybody there. <laughs> so, but um, he seemed nice enough, and 
said that he'd looked through the tape of stuff that I had sent with the graphics manager at the time and um, they, they looked through the stuff and then they went out of the room and I was like sat in there for about a couple of minutes and uh, it came back in and said, well, can you start in two weeks? So I had two weeks to basically tell my parents, I'm leaving home, I'm going to Manchester. <laughs> so I had to pack a suitcase and move down to Manchester. They put me up in a hotel for two weeks until I could find accommodation, like a flat, and um, that was it. That's where it started. What a massive life change, though. I mean, you must have been nervous, were you? I was terrified. I'd never been out of, like, where I, the, I'd obviously I'd been out of the village, but I hadn't been out of that area of Scotland before. So coming down to the city where it was much more busy, there was loads more people, there was much more stuff going on. And yeah, it was pretty terrifying, but it was either carry on or go back home where there's not really much happening, you know, job-wise, and I wasn't able to do what I wanted to do. It was quite a big eye-opener for me because I had to actually go and speak to people that I didn't know. So I was having to create relationships with people and get to know people, which I wasn't very good at. <laughs> um, so it brought me out of my shell quite a lot. And it was like being back at school, to be quite honest with you. It was just a load of... I was expecting it to be like guys older than me, you know, with uh, like cardigans and uh, nice haircuts and being very... like Just getting on with the job and that sort of thing. And it wasn't. It was just a load of kids my age just messing about. It, it was like being at school, but the teacher, Gary Bracey, wasn't around all the time. So there was just so much stuff happening. Well, your first major project was uh, Daley Thompson's Olympic Challenge. Uh, what do you remember about working on this game? Oh, God, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's like there was that two weeks where I had to stay home and then I came down on the train and then the following day I was I went into Gary's office and he said, well, you're working on Daley Thompson's Olympic Challenge. And I was like, what? <laughs> Firstly, because they were doing another one, a third one. So I thought, well, this is going to test me because it, I see I'm either going to get the sack straight away or I'm going to carry on. Um, and I hadn't done any animation at that point. I'd only done mock-ups and images so i had to learn to do animation on the fly but fortunately they had um videos of the the recent um the, the previous uh olympics of like the 100 meters and the long jump and all that sort of stuff so i could basically copy what was happening on the screen and i was working out how to do my own sort of run cycles and jump animations and all that i was i was just basically trying to i was winging it to make sure i didn't get the sack well obviously that year 1988 i, I think that was the year that daily finished outside the medals for the first time um did that affect the sales of the game Manx? i know that was like the the last one in the in the trilogy wasn't it um i don't know i don't really know much about how much it sold I know that it was it was pretty important because w they had licensing from um, Adidas trainers and they had um, Lucasade as well. 
they were plastered all over the game in various places. And Gary had the idea of doing the training section at the beginning to sort of so that you would go in with those stats to play the game. They don't. They don't actually have. They don't. They don't actually have any. They don't make a, a slight bit of difference in the game at all. You, you can <laughs> you can play that training thing all you want. It makes no difference. The I also suspected that for months. Same with the trainers. <laughs> the trainers make no difference either. Did you actually meet Daley Thompson at any point? No, we didn't. No, I think Gary did, but we didn't. We got a photocopy of a photocopy of a signature that he wrote on his um, his book. That he he has a a book that he he had with him that had all the stats and stuff about the the Olympics and all that sort of thing. So we got uh, a third rate version of his uh, autograph. Well, obviously on the spectrum, doing animation, um, Colour Clash was a big, you know, you could call it a feature of the spectrum. How did you work within its limitations then, Colour Clash? Was that something you had to overcome quite regularly? Uh, not really, no. We, we'd, with a lot of uh, the stuff that we were doing, the, the main uh, graphics were sort of monochrome or with very limited colour. But any colour that we I did want to put into it, then it would have been either outside of the game area or on the the loading screen and i'd done graphics on the spectrum for for long enough that i knew how to get not maybe not get around the color clash but hide it or make it look not look as bad as it as it could well you worked on a huge title next which was a chase hq did you uh play the arcade oh, I, thought were, I thought you were gonna say bad dudes versus dragon ninja <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a whole episode about that one <laughs> yeah, yeah were you uh, much of a fan of it or did you play the arcade version much uh no i didn't know anything about it we got the we got the arcade machine delivered uh to the office like the full one, the sit-in, that you sit in it and it's got the screen and everything on it. The, so I we got all of that. Um, I think we had it for about a couple of months and then they we, we had just like a, an arcade board version with like a steering wheel on it and the, the, the actual machine was taken off somewhere else. I've no idea where. But um, no, I hadn't really played it. So I had to sort of learn to play it in the process of doing the game. And were you impressed at the game then when you got into it? Oh, yeah, it looked great. It was uh, I wasn't sort of infamous for not being able to play games very well. In fact, most of my time at Ocean, like people would get me to play the games, and if I was really good at it, they knew they had to make it harder. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was good, but... Uh, we we weren't able to get any graphics out of the out of the arcade board, so it was basically me sat on the front of the machine um, drawing pictures of the the cars and various other objects on paper, and then taking it to the spectrum and uh, drawing it out that way. Wow. So I was going to ask that. That was going to be my next question, actually, if um, if there was any elements you could actually take straight from the arcade machine. Like, did you have to kind of re-implement everything? I know you worked with um, John O'Brien on the conversion. I mean, kind of talk us through what was involved converting an arcade game like that to, to a home system. Well, he was in charge of the code, and uh, 
he'd already no mike lamb had worked on um weck lemon that lemon game that uh, imagine had brought out and he had done the uh the track on that with sentient software and i think mike had given john o'brien the the code for the track and john o'brien had managed to sort of improve it make it faster made the roads split and all that sort of thought thing it was it was really impressive to see without any of the graphics on it just the road moving on its own so we knew it was going to be like a really good title so you know i had to sit in front of the the machine draw out sketch out all the cars um like the different angles of the car turning left and right and the animated smoke and the hands coming out of the <laughs> the window and putting the light on the top so i did that was all drawn on paper first and then put into the spectrum um i did some sketches of the different types of cars and i think by that time we were doing graphics on the atari st so we didn't have uh, on the spectrum. There wasn't much in the the way of being able to scale graphics down. So on the ST, we could actually I could actually draw the full size car, and then scale it down about so there were six different sizes of car going into the distance, and just needed to tidy up each one to make sure that when they came towards you, that it was as smooth as possible. But even though I did do six, they only, ended up only using four. So it, it was a bit jerky at coming towards the screen as I would have liked, but I guess they could only hold like a certain amount of graphics and memory at a time. Well, even then, I mean, the amount of detail that was in the, the home conversions, I mean, compared to most arcade games at the time, it was actually a lot in there. Oh, yeah. I mean, we did manage to, like, there was the trees and, and the buildings we did um a different way from everybody else i think because the trees were made up of there was like a base with the trunk and the bottom of the leaves and then there was a strip a narrow strip of leaves that was repeated up and then there was a cap on the top so it wasn't all one complete massive spray it was made up of three different parts um, and we did that with the the buildings as well, so that you could have big objects going past you, but they weren't actually big; they were like repeated in the middle. Yeah, there was a good variety of uh, levels. You know, you could tell the difference, but also like the um, helicopter, uh, I really thought was awesome with the uh, shadow cast onto the ground when it was going above you at the same time. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. And well, that was just like everything else. I mean, I had to draw the helicopter down and then uh, put it into the draw it into the the spectrum from from paper. But there was a whole area at the top of the screen that was um, not being used. So I said to John about putting like the top of the arcade machine ab- above the gameplay area, so that you would have. Um, the lights would flash when the it was just flashing brightness on and off on the on the lights, um, and you'd have the scoreboard there and the, the the time and all the rest of it. And because I was like into drawing and drawing portraits, and you had the the different the characters pop up, I decided to like we'll we'll, we'll do Nancy, um, each of the. Um, 
each of the baddies that you chase will have their own portrait, which is based on other people in the office. So I managed to get quite a lot of my own stuff in there that wasn't in the uh, that wasn't in the arcade. So I managed to put my own stamp on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, alongside the Specky, you're also working on the um, Amstrad and uh, C64. Which machine did you kind of prefer working for? I, th- I think I liked the Amstrad because of the amount of colours, but I wasn't happy with the fat sprites, that the you know, double-width sprites that they had on it and on the Commodore 64 as well. That's probably the only thing that was... Uh, I like the amount of colour and how much you could actually do, but the fact that it, everything looks stretched. And it's one of the things that sort of annoys me about the Amstrad version of Chase HQ is the the, um, the portraits don't look half as good as the, they do on the Spectrum. Uh, did you do anything where it was like kind of develop the Amstrad version and pump the Specky version out from that, or was it all individually done on each machine? No, the... Um, we did the uh, Spectrum version first, and then once that was all done and dusted, it was basically put the code into the Amstrad um, and uh, redo the graphics if needed. You could use this, the Spectrum ones in some cases and just color them a different color. But I think he wanted to do them because it would be faster with the double-width pixels. So I ended up having to redraw all the cars and all the graphics and everything anyway, so... That's that was done. I know that was a constant frustration of friends of mine back in the day who had Amstrads that you know many games would literally just put the the Spectrum graphics pixel for pixel on there, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, I don't think it was me that did it, but somebody did the um, the loading screen and just changed the colours on it so that each bit had a different colour. And I think they did the same with the the Robocop loading screen where they just changed the, the different colors of the, the the pixels but you know anything if it's going to be if you want something done quick then that's probably what you do because it was done in like um the, the chase hq probably took about five months five and a half months but we're to do the amstrad in four weeks wow <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh yeah it wasn't too bad for him because he would just like get the code and to tweak it a bit so that it works. So it was it was more more work for the artist really to redraw any graphics it needed doing. Well, obviously, by the time we got into the late eighties, early nineties, I mean everyone was moving over to sixteen bit. How did you make the transition to the sixteen bit machines like the Amiga and the ST? Well, I liked, but the, I had an, an Atari ST anyway. So when I was doing the graphics for Chase HQ, I was like creating a little 16-color palette, and I was drawing, funnily enough, portraits again. I was drawing pictures of people and, like, drawing shading and stuff just just to, like, learn how to do it. And when we found out that we were doing Batman next, it was basically the code for uh, Chase HQ was sort of reused and um, it was changed so that it would run on the ST and Amiga. But the first thing that I did was I started, um, I had a a magazine with pictures of Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson as the Joker. And in this little square, this little sprite box on the ST, I was uh, drawing pictures like I had uh, Batman and I had the Joker on it. And Gary just happened to walk past at the time when I was doing it. 
And he went, oh, that's really good. Um, we'll put that in the game. And I was like, how? Would you mean put it in the game? He says, oh, we'll put it in the game somehow. So so that got put in like on the utility belt to say whether, you know, whether the energy was going down, it would change from Batman to the Joker. And that was like the first thing I'd done. It wasn't even meant to be in the game. It was just like me practicing using like the colors and learning how to use the machine. Well, how did Ocean score the Batman license then? Because that movie was absolutely huge. Uh, maybe it wasn't before, actually, uh, but when it hit, my God, that was like a, a proper change in culture, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't think... These big film companies didn't think that computer games were going to bring them much revenue. So when Gary or whoever went and said, can we have the license to Batman, it was probably about a few grand. And we created the the game for it based on that. I mean, even Jurassic Park, they got the they got the license for that when it was still a novel. So that was uh, quite astute, quite brilliant for the. I think it was Dave Ward who managed to get hold of that at the time, just on the fact of just on the basis of the novel. So he wanted to make a game of it based on that, and then. Obviously, there was the film as well, so you know it was it it was big, even bigger. Yeah, because that Batman movie was absolutely huge. I even remember, you know, the Batmobile toy that all the kids had and everything. So it just it just worked so well having um, the kind of game coming out at the same time as well. That was my reference for the uh, the game. Actually, was the uh, the the toy car because um, obviously we had to draw the Batmobile the same way that I had drawn the car in Chase HQ, but I had no reference. The only thing I had was a picture of Michael Keaton stood next to the door of the Batmobile and you could see like a bit of a fin, I think. So I had no idea what it looked like. So it was just a case of like draw everything else and um, hopefully they will uh, come out with like a, a toy in, in plenty of time for me to use it. So everything else was done. And then at, right at the very last hour, I think I had gone up to the comic shop in Manchester and it was there. They actually had the Batmobile out. So I just bought it, took it back straight down to the machine and started like drawing the uh, the car rotating left and right. I mean, at that point, I was so desperate. I was going to um, get the Amiga and trying to use the 3D modeler on the Amiga to try and make. It was just impossible. I just I couldn't work out how to use it fast enough. But uh, fortunately, this this little toy car came out in plenty of time, so that saved my life. It's interesting you mentioned like how you know Warner Brothers didn't really see. Video games has been a you know major marketing or merchandise potential. I mean, did you, did you not get any help at all or any inside like sketches or anything off them at all? Then um, we got the script and we got a lot of sketches that Tim Burton had used, like to frame up the the shots. Um, so there was a lot of like really sketchy drawings of Batman and various other characters doing things. They're just storyboards of the of the film. So we got them, and that was about it. So it, it was good for like the gameplay to sort of work out 
where the character was going in the game, what level design we were going to have. We're going to have like 2D walking ones, which was basically just Robocop. In fact, it was Mike Lamb that programmed it. And the 3D um, areas were going to be obviously on the Spectrum and the Commodore 64 that were side on. So they got myself and John O'Brien back in because we'd done Chase HQ. So we had to basically do Chase HQ again, but in with more colours. Well, I remember that Christmas, I mean, pretty much all the kids at school got um, Amiga 500s with the Batman pack. And having, like, you know, an Amiga pack built around that game, that must have really helped take it and Ocean to the next level, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we weren't really... We just got told about this at the last minute. So it was just a case of we had our heads down doing the... trying to get the game out on time. Um, and then occasionally we'd hear, oh, it's going to be bundled with this and that. And we'd think, oh, yeah, that's more money for them. <laughs> we're we're going to yeah. get, get the same amount of money, but they're going to really cash in with this. So, yeah, it was all right for the company, but, you know, we just got we just got the same. Well, Ocean kind of started becoming the kings of movie licenses and like movie license games were quite bad before that. Um, did it did it change the company? Um, yeah, because everything basically had to be a license or something that they could hook on to a, uh, a film or whatever. Because uh, I, I know Simon Butler has said this, that he's had, um, he had a design for an original game that wasn't a license. And then when he went to take it to Gary to show him, he was like, oh, can we put, a li- cause can we put it on a license? Can we hook it onto a film or something? And he was like, no, this is something that I've just made up. But they weren't interested because obviously they wanted to make the money back and they wanted to make a lot of money back. So they could buy these fairly cheap licenses. I'm, I'm assuming by the time they got to Jurassic Park, they were more expensive. So they managed to get them fairly cheap and then were making quite a lot of money on sales. I think the film companies managed to twig that, hey, they're making a lot of money and we are not getting any of it. So <laughs> they put the, uh, I think the, the the amount of money that they would charge for licenses went up. Well, between Batman and um, Jurassic Park, you actually did the graphics on Lethal Weapon, but I actually think is a really underrated platformer. I mean, I used to love that game as a kid. What do you remember about working on that project? Um, oh, God, it was... Um... I didn't really have much to do with that. I think the only thing I did was the um, there's an area at the start where you choose your level. Yeah, it's like in the office. This, that was the only thing I did on that. Right. I just remember that it was really difficult. Yeah, I'm terrible at that game to this day. <laughs> oh yeah, the the guy who programmed it was um, he was notorious for doing really difficult games, and. Um, the graphic style, they decided to go for a sort of Mario style for Lethal Weapon, which, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's not what I would have done, but, you know, it's some people seemed to like it. A lot of people didn't. It was very in vogue at that time. I mean, you know, they did the same with the Adams Family game as well, didn't they? Like kind of Mario clones, I guess, because they were kind of flavour of the month. Yeah, but I can see why they would do it with the Adams Family because it was more sort of family orientated. Where you wouldn't say Lethal Weapon was like a family orientated <laughs> game or film, would you? And it, it was a very slippy game to play. I remember kind of jumping on stuff and sliding everywhere <laughs> with a lethal weapon. Yeah, yeah. It was everything seemed to be icy for some reason. I don't know why. 
I like the music on it as well. I think it's used to blast. Yeah, there's a there's, there's a weird rumor going around. Uh, apparently, Rihanna uh, stole her, one of her tracks from Lethal Weapon, but I, I, I don't know if that's correct. Seriously, no. I don't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Check on YouTube. There's a comparison with the Lethal Weapon uh, tune and, and a Rihanna tune. It's uh, yeah, it's kind of close. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> Well, Ocean also did the homecoming version of the arcade, um, Toki. Um, and the graphics on that, I remember, being really arcade-like. I mean, w- were you involved in that project? And how did that kind of license come about, do you remember? Um, I don't know much about how they got the license. I know it, was being, it wasn't being done in the office. But uh, I don't know what happened with that. I think Gary was looking at the game and decided that he liked the sprites, but he didn't like the backgrounds. So he decided to take them in-house, and I got them. Um, I'd never worked in a Commodore 64 before and haven't since. So I was using um, a a graphics editor that um, John Megan, the programmer, had written. I think he'd written it anyway. And he showed me basically how to, to use it and how to set up the backgrounds and the platforms and stuff. And again, it was, I had a TV and a video set up next to the computer and every so often I would just press pause and like draw stuff out on paper and then lay it, the the, uh, the levels out like they were in the video. So I was just copying what the, there was on the screen as much as I could. I don't even know if it was any good or whether it was terrible because I'd never worked on the Commodore 64 before. Well, Ocean got the... Um license for jurassic park and that that seemed to be for the amiga and the dos version because a snes version came out that was different and uh, a genesis version as well what what were the kind of details of them getting the license in there and uh, what did you think of that title as well that was a that that was one where um i really sort of hated gary bracy for because he got to go over to hollywood and have meetings with steven spielberg and all these people quite a few times and god it was just so annoying when he'd come in and tell us all these stories about who he'd met and <laughs> so it was yeah he'd, he'd managed to get hold of the license and um i remember he wanted me to do some 3d graphics for something it had that uh, uh, first person shooter section in didn't it so uh, it might it might have been that Oh no no! This was before before we actually started the game. Ah, okay. He wanted me to do like um, he wanted me to do a, a picture, a three D model of the the island, with uh, the logo on it, and he wanted the camera to sort of as if it was skimming across the island and then pull up to show the logo. And I was like, right, okay. So I was using three D Studio at the time on DOS. So I did this and gave it to him and then it turns up on a video of um i think it's on youtube as well the um all this the 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 licensing video for jurassic park and my little animation that i did is on the video along with everything else like lunch boxes and like breakfast cereals and video games so that was the first thing so i thought wow this is i'm on video now so what happens next and we had to design the game. We decided to go for a sort of top-down, at an angle sort of look. 
I did the uh, the animated sprites, so I did the main character. Um, I did most of the dinosaurs. I didn't do the T Rex, unfortunately. And they were uh, they were really accurate, weren't they? They were kind of to the, to the film. I remember playing it, and the dinosaurs being pretty much exactly the same ones. As, as we got a lot saw. of reference material from the from the the movie company. We got all the um, we got uh, sketches done by the artist there, and when we saw these pictures, we knew that we had to up our game because these like pencil drawings of really detailed images of the different dinosaurs and and stuff were just amazing to look at. So you had the angle, you had you had different pictures of like the heads, you had the full body, you had pictures of them like to scale the humans so that you know what they look like we got uh, photographs of the cast with the costumes on so we knew what the characters look like yeah the kids were really accurate and uh, like the main characters as well I, I really appreciated that when i played it i was like oh god yeah it actually felt exactly like like the movie you know yeah, but we we actually got proper reference material for it, so we could make it ex- as much or as close to the um, as close to like the, the the movie as possible regarding the the way things looked. And there was that first person shooter section. Was that kind of like um, a, a little a go at Alien vs Predator at the time, or, or, or kind of was it just? Uh, just because everybody was getting into FPS. <laughs> no, I think Gary had seen Wolfenstein and thought, "Well, can we have a can we have a Wolfenstein bit in it?" And at the time, there was um, the company that um, did Danger Mouse and all those uh, cartoons was based in Manchester in Cholton, and we actually employed about three or four people from that studio to animate and draw the the dinosaurs for that well, um wasn't one of the um stone roses um uh, artists uh, i think it was john squire or someone working for that danger mouse company as well uh, at one I point know. i don't know about that yeah there was a weird weird crossover <laughs> with the stone roses and danger mouse i remember i know that um one of the guys had worked with don bluth who had done like loads of cartoons like um American Tale and Five Goes West, and another one had worked on had worked with Disney, so he had all these folders of stuff that I photocopied and I've now got in my possession, of like all the um, the Disney characters with showing you how to draw them, like with the um, like this is how you draw Mickey Mouse, and it shows you the head, and it shows you the different rotations of the head, it shows you the body. It shows you how he walks. It shows you how he runs and jumps. And God, there was just so much stuff. Um, and they they let me have copies of all this. And obviously, because they were anim- they were proper animators, and we were just trying to get by. But I did learn quite a lot from those guys because they're, they're they're really generous and would like if if I had anything that I wanted to know, like how do you do this, how do you do that, they would like sit down with you and show you how to do it. Because they were all they were all on light boxes with pens and paper, we were on the computers, so it wasn't until later on when they had to scan the images in on the computer, and then they were given to somebody else, I think, to to colour in. Well, obviously, I mean, it's hard to describe for people that don't remember it. Um, 
1993, that was the summer of Jurassic Park. I mean, you know, a lot of people say that was after Star Wars, that was like the next massive movie. You know, there hasn't been many on, on that scale. It seemed like Ocean were really on a high then, and, you know, you're working on these AAA games. When and why did you leave Ocean then? What kind of happened? I had started on Jurassic Park 2 on the SNES. Um, was it the SNES? Yeah, I think it was on the SNES. I'd worked on the SNES version of the first Jurassic Park because the Gary wasn't happy with the, the Raptors, so he asked me to redraw them. So I've got, I've got, I think I've got a credit in the uh, the SNES version as well. But I think Gary was getting a bit fed up and decided that he wanted to leave, and the whole atmosphere of the place started to go down. And it was it was not long before they got bought up by Infograms, and there was different management, and it didn't seem like much work was getting done. And they had spent a lot of money on uh, silicon graphics machines when Jurassic Park came out. This it was like thirty thousand pounds for these mag these. Um, machines and the software ridiculous amount of money and they were being used but they were being used on a title that i don't think ever saw the light of day so everybody was getting pissed off so various people were leaving gary left um a few of my friends left to go to america Um, another couple of friends left and set up a company who would end up being bought out by Marvel Comics because they were a comics company called Malibu Comics. And uh, they said, come and work for us. (laughs) So I just left. I said I'd had enough. And, you know, it seemed like things were going downhill there anyway. And it was a few years before it finally did sort of close down. I think they'd moved to another building by that point. So I, they seemed to be spending a lot of money, but they had no product out. So I decided to take the offer of work and went to go elsewhere. Well, I mean, you know, as a kid, I always remember when that Ocean logo flashed up. Um, I, I always got really excited and knew it was going to be an experience. And a hell of a lot changed in that decade that you were there. You know, you talk about, you know, the, the mid-80s to the mid-90s. The video games industry changed beyond all recognition. And I know it's not really a retro title, but I've got to ask about your work on uh, Sonic and Sega All-Stars Racing about a decade ago, because that is one of my favourite ever kart races. I love that game. Oh, yeah. What was the story there and what was it like working on, uh, on the Sonic franchise? Um, well, I'd worked on the, sh- the Sonic franchise before. I had worked at a company called Rockpool Games who did mobile uh, titles. Um, and they they did a mobile version of um, Sonic the Hedgehog, the first one. I think they did another couple of titles, Sonic Crash and Sonic something else. And then somebody had the brilliant idea to do Sonic the Hedgehog Golf. So I worked <laughs> on, I, I did that as well. I don't remember that one. No, no, it's only on phones. <laughs> right. So they ended up getting bought out by um, IDOS and then the company closed down. So I was stuck without a job and didn't really know what I was going to do because. Um, I had then had a kid and it wasn't easy for me to just get up and move somewhere else to do work. So 
I it took me a while, but I decided to work for myself to freelance. I had no idea what I was doing, but I, I found somebody that managed to get me some work, and it was at um, at Sumo in Sheffield. So I got the interview there, and I I went to the interview, and I was met by the I think it was the producer and the um, the lead artist. The uh, the lead artist was like, well, I can't tell you anything about this game. I can't tell you what it is, what it's about because it's it's very top secret what we're working on. Um, and I was like, oh right, okay. Um, so what sort of work do you want me to do? And he said, well, we want you to do some tracks for a, a sort of a, a racing sort of thing. And I went, so it, it's a racing game then, is it? And the sort of the two of them sort of looked at each other and were like, "Yeah, well, you've just kind of given it away. It's a racing game." So <laughs> the the producer was like, "Okay, like we're working on Sonic the Hedgehog. We're basically doing Mario Kart, but with Sonic characters in it." So I was like, "Wow, yeah, I really want to do that." And I think it was. I hadn't really done a lot of environment work then, but I think it was probably the fact that I'd worked on three Sonic titles before that they decided to give me a chance on the game. So it was the... I don't know which version you've been playing, but I was doing the um, the DS version. Right, yeah, I've got the DS. Um, I've got them all, actually, and, and 360 and PS3. Yeah, it's one of, one of my favourite racing games. Oh, right. Um so I go there on my first day and they're telling me about what they need. They needed like 12 tracks doing um, for this game. And it was really serious. They had to bring in a load of like contractors to get the game finished. To, but on the like, probably it would have been the PS2 or 3, I think. I don't know. And the Xbox at the time. So it was a real struggle to get all this done. So it worked out I was going to be taking like two weeks per track. So I I said to one of the guys that was working there, how many tracks have you got? Because like you've been working on this for a year. You must have loads of tracks. And he said, no, we've got one. I was like, one? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's not even one because even that one's not finished. It runs, but it's not finished. Wow. So they were basically paying contractors to come in and do the work. I was there for about, I was supposed to be there for three months. And there was, God, there must have been about 30 contractors in there. I was there, I ended up being there for six months and two weeks. And by that time, I was the only contractor there. And in the middle of that, they had made a load of redundancies as well. So I was thinking that my contract was going to get, was going to get cut as well, but they, they kept me on for a bit longer. So I was taking, I was trying to take what had been done on like the consoles and I was going to do the uh, the DS version of what they had. As I was plowing through the, like the tracks that I was doing, I was getting to a point where the track wasn't even built. They, they didn't even have any sort of sketches of what the track was going to look like. So I was just told to like, ah, just make some not. <laughs> so the the only thing I would get would be a spline, which had the um, the track on it, which was just like the just the road and nothing else. 
And it was bit, then they'd say, well, just build something around that. You had to use your imagination quite a bit then. Pretty much, yeah, for yeah. a lot of it, yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, I think the game came out really well. You know, it, it is uh, one of my favourite kind of kart races to play. Um, are you still involved in the, the games industry today then? What, what are you working on these days? I am, yeah. This will be 30, 33 years I've been in the industry now. It's quite a long time. Yeah, I've, I'm working for a company called Skyhook Games that um, they do outsourced graphics for different sort of um, different projects. Um, and I'm working on, I've worked on two things that I can't really talk about. <laughs> Um, one thing is coming out the second quarter of this year, so I can let you know about that when it's uh, when it's due to be out. Right. But a lot of the people that I've worked with have, at the time when I was working on another project, have just have finished. In fact, I can't actually talk about this now. Um, they were working on the PS Five, the um, uh, Destruction All Stars. Right, yeah, yeah. So they've uh, all the people from Skyhook that, that weren't working on other projects have been working on Destruction All Stars, and that's I think that's out now on the PS5. If you've got one, <laughs> it's really difficult uh, I to can't get, one. get hold of one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When I do, I'll check it out then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, Bill, it's been um, incredible having a little journey, you know, down memory lane with you and uh, sharing some of your memories of those games that we grew up playing. So, uh, been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on and be our guest. Yeah, it was good to talk to you. I hope it wasn't uh, too boring. <laughs> oh no, no, not at all. I really enjoyed it. 